2: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the fate of the rally, our investment committee making new moves in this market as well. We'll go through them. Joining me for the hour today, Josh Brown, Stephanie Link, Shannon Sakosha. And Jim Labenthal, let's check the markets right now. We do have a bit of a pickup here. Dow's good for uh, about 170. There's the S&P 500, one third of 1%. NASDAQ with a nice rebound today. Ten-year note yield is falling. We're going to get into all of that. It's at 434. So, Shan, we're about to post the best month since July of 22 is it time to get more bullish i look squarely at you and ask the question and you know exactly why i'm starting with you
0: because i have been a little bit more cautious yes this you year. have is uh, it time
2: to change
0: so i listen are we talking about the next four weeks or are we talking about the next six months so i think if we're talking about the next four weeks scott there again very few hurdles to upset the rally that we are enjoying. Um, One of my concerns coming into this week was that we would see maybe perhaps weaker than anticipated retail sales. Did not see that, certainly seeing stronger than that. Um, Expectations potentially of um, some changes in Fed speak, uh, some indications that perhaps inflation is not going the way that they thought. We obviously are not seeing that today either. So I think if you're looking at from here to the end of the year, oh, and and bond auctions, those have been going better than expected. So if you think about Treasury issuance, so from here to the end of the year, you're right. There's not a lot to upset. Why are you only
3: willing
2: to give it for four weeks?
0: Because if you think about what's happening, underlying in the economic data, we continue to see some slowing of economic data. But more importantly, think about the positioning, Scott. Think about where we were at the beginning of 2023. The three sectors that have done really well this year, tech, communication services, discretionary, pretty much oversold coming into 2023. If you think about what was preferred coming into 2023, more defensive sectors. We've seen a lot of pain there. Healthcare, staples, utilities, real estate. So if I look at positioning my portfolio, um, I think Rob was on here the other day talking about, are you going to want to take those gains in this environment? No, you're probably not going to want to trim your winners right now. You're going to want to go into the year with those on your books. You go into January and February, I think there might be a little bit more pressure. And more importantly, looking at the potential for multiple compression of the names that have done really well this year, there are other opportunities in the market market where you could see some multiple expansion, especially for an environment where we do expect revenues and earnings to grow, but perhaps at a, at a more muted pace.
2: Jimmy, all in. <laughs> Is Shannon still too cautious? Is it time to get more bullish?
3: Well, I do think you're too cautious, but I don't think you're out of your mind. That's not what I'm saying at all. And I don't think That's bulls That's good because like I me. didn't ask you
2: that. I just ask if too cautious. Okay,
3: but, but the bulls like me generally acknowledge what the bearish case is, which centers on the fact that there are lagged effects to Fed hiking. And the reason I'm going on about this is because these are real effects, and we see it in things like consumer delinquencies. We think about that in the context of the resumption of student loans. We wonder what capital budgets are going to be in corporate America as far as hiring goes next year. So there's validity to being bearish. However, the burden of proof, in my opinion, is on the data to prove the bulls wrong. What that means is that the inflation data has to come in too hot going forward from here. Actually, Scott, not talking about this week's PCE, because that's looking at October, which is which was a long time ago. But next mm-hmm. week, when you get wage gains in the, in the November labor report, that will be the first indication of what November inflation is doing. For the bulls thesis to work out, the Fed has to be done. Let me state that again. For the bulls thesis, i.e. mine, the Fed has to be done raising rates. And so what I'm really paying attention to is next week's labor reports and then the following week's CPI, PPI. You, you, Those have to come in
2: soft. You're looking at that 10-year right there well, at what 433?
3: That's saying. What, what is that saying? That's saying the Fed's done. And if they're done, I think this rally continues. And I think there's a point in time where Shannon looks at it and says, okay, the Fed's done, uh, and, and, we, I mean, and we get in.
2: On that note, Steph, I'll, I'll get you in just a second. Let me bring in Steve Leisman, our senior economics reporter, because maybe you call this the Waller bounce, Um, the 10-year Steve started going lower and the stock market started going higher uh, when he suggested that the policy rate could be lower if inflation continues to fall for several more months, i.e., did we just get the first Fed official acknowledging that you could actually have a cut of interest rates?
4: So we're checking on that, but I do know, Scott, that I talked to two Fed officials last week. I asked them this very question. Neither wanted to go there. Uh, The way I'm thinking about this, uh, Scott, is it's fascinating. Waller said the quiet part out loud. It's something that Fed officials have not wanted to say, even though it's a truism. It's absolutely true that if inflation continues to go down, the Fed's gonna need to lower rates, otherwise it becomes relatively more restrictive. And the impact, as you say, across markets worldwide was pretty profound. Um, He had made some dovish comments in his prepared remarks, and the market came down a little bit, at least the yield fell a little bit, uh, stocks came up. But then at about 10.40 this morning, he said that there's no reason why you wouldn't lower rates if inflation comes down, and he could definitely see a lower policy rate. Take a look at the probabilities and what happened right there. Not saying this is right, but this is the immediate market reaction. What you had is an immediate jump from a 38% probability of a rate cut in May to 62%, and then across uh, and, and down the spectrum there uh, into July and into uh, into June and July. Those probabilities also went up. Now, you could say that all he would say was stating the obvious. Another sort of interpretation is that, he wouldn't be saying this if he didn't think it was likely. And I do think it is likely that next year, before the first half is over, the Fed will be in the mode of cutting rates if, indeed, inflation comes down. Because, Steph, this goes
2: exactly to the point that we've been discussing of whether the Fed cuts rates because it can, not because it has to. Waller is suggesting, and Steve is adding his own you know, reporting color on that, that this is a can, not have to move.
5: For sure. Look at the job market. We're running at 220,000 weekly initial jobless claims over the last four weeks. I always look at that number. Jobs are strong. Wages are growing mid single digits. The savings rate is at 3.4%. The consumer is not falling off a cliff. Are they challenged? Certainly. But they will be benefiting from lower inflation. We talked about yesterday. Oil prices are down 20% from their peak. Also, the BLS just released the new rents. Rents are coming down faster than expected. That's very positive. And I do think, Jim, the PCE on Friday is a very important number, because it's expected to show 3.1% from Mm 3.4 and a peak of 5.6. So that's all good, and then you talked about the tenure and interest rates coming down. All of these things are good for the consumer. By the way, all of these things are good for businesses and for margins to hold up. So if the overall economy doesn't collapse, which I don't think it will, if it grows one and two percent, but margins hang in there, earnings go higher. And if you've noticed, a lot of the strategies that we've talked about are actually raising numbers. Scott,
2: Steve, oh how far we've come from the days not so long ago when it was erring on the side of doing too much. I mean, we have really come a far way from that, haven't we?
4: That's a really important point, Scott, which is one of the ways I read your question is what's the bias of the Fed? And the importance of the bias of the Fed here is getting at the investment thesis that's out there, which is, is there tolerance for the Federal Reserve for a couple or a inflation report that ends up being a little bit on the high side which in the mode you're talking about, the, the old mode, was, oh, it's running hot, let's hike again. I think there is some tolerance. I think that everybody at the table there needs to be aware that you are not going to run in a straight line down a 2%. There will be obstacles along the way, as uh, Van Morrison, I guess, sang years mm. ago. Um, but in general, the trend is, is down. The trend is in place. You have these lower energy prices. You have goods, either deflation or or zero on goods. Uh, the question is bringing service inflation back in the line. And you do have indications that the housing part of that will be coming down. Um, but you're right, Scott. The Fed is, I don't know, if its finger was on the hiking button before now it's maybe a little bit raised and maybe even their hands are are kind of crossed like this a little bit, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm just going to wait and see and see what the thing is to be patient here. I think that's more the mode of where the Fed is to let, as uh, Jim was talking about earlier, let the lags do their work, let high interest rates on the 10-year do their work. Of course, they're down a bit, but as Waller said in his to remarks, they're still higher than they were. He still sees monetary policy as restricted. Sure, but it's definitely, you know, maybe, you know,
2: don't wreck what you don't have to wreck. And before they were willing to wreck it if they had to. And now they see a different I think, uh, a different path.
4: I think that's right. And, and you know, Sarah asked me uh, in the last hour about this notion of Christine Lagarde possibly uh, uh, increasing the pace of the runoff of the balance sheet. And that's why I don't think Powell was going to do it. I think he sees the balance sheet running off, which, by the way, is a powerful undercurrent to the deflationary or the disinflationary impulse that's out there. We don't talk a lot about it, but the Fed is indeed running off its balance sheet. That is putting some pressure on uh, on the economy as well. <laughs> and so the story is that he's not gonna mess with that because it's going so far so good.
2: Mm-hmm. Steve, I appreciate it very much. Steve Leesman, our senior economics good correspondent, pleasure. covering that. So Josh, um, I'll just ask you what I asked at the top, because now you have the context of of Waller and maybe the way we need to think about this now. um, Is it time to get more bullish on the market than maybe we we thought we should be?
6: As I've been saying for the last couple of weeks, I do not think the Fed is the story anymore. Whether or not there's one more hike is not the point. A lot of the hikes that have been done still haven't shown up yet in the data. We are starting to see some upticks in, in certain areas of delinquencies, but they're so minor they, they don't even make a dent. So I don't think that's the focus of the market right now. This has been another bone-crushing year for a lot of active managers. They do have catching up to do. We've been talking about this since October. The way they're gonna do it is the way they've always done it, which is to chase tech right into the end of the year. My friend Ari Wald at Oppenheimer had a great piece over the weekend talking about the fact that I think 2020 20, three of the last 26 or 20 of the last 23 bull markets have been led by tech. This is the playbook. There is no other playbook that normally works. There are some exceptions where you get a value sector leading a bull market, but for the most part, if the overall market, the S&P 500, is in a bull, technology stocks are going to be far ahead of a lot of other sectors of the market, and the probabilities are greatest when you buy the highest quality. That's what you're gonna see, it's what you've been seeing. One of the biggest lessons of this year, and this is really important for the viewers, stop putting yourself in a box. Don't wake up and announce, I'm a value investor, I'm a dividend investor. Leave yourself room to make sure that you're in the market, depending on what's working in any given year, that you're in a position to succeed. Charlie Grant at at the Wall Street Journal uh, wrote about growth versus value this year. It is unbelievable. This is the biggest spread between growth versus value in the last 25 years. You're talking about 31 percentage points for the Russell 3000 growth versus 2% returns for the value index. You almost might even be playing a different sport. So asset managers have to do this. That's how they get put into buckets. That's how they raise AUM. They need to tell Morningstar what box to put them in. Individual investors watching this program never put yourself in a position where you can have the market leave you behind to this extent because you put a logo on your jersey. That's not what investing is. That's what asset management is. If you're not a professional mutual fund manager, you don't have to declare that you only do X or Y. No need at all.
2: No, but people have their, their disciplines. Let me, let me talk to you about a couple things that you've done in the market because I want to get into that now. Um, a new buy for you Let's do it. is PayPal. Let's do that first. You tell me why. Yep. Why'd you buy PayPal?
6: This is funny. It's definitely not a growth stock, uh, but it's definitely not a value stock either. Uh, PayPal reminds me a lot of a couple of months ago what Shopify looked like, and Shopify has just literally launched into outer space. A firm. This is probably the hottest stock of the month. I've never seen anything like it. What both of those companies have in common is they're basically telling us, that this is the buy now pay later christmas it is a it is a very important new tool in the arsenal of consumers who are looking at credit card rates pushing 25 to 30% you're seeing a lot of bnpl activity the companies that play in that space including paypal are in a position to play a really big role in e-commerce i don't know if you know this but on friday it was an incredible Uh, e-commerce day, one of the great e-commerce days of all time. And this is exactly the type of stock that I think is poised to win as a result. PayPal is also a little bit of a special situation judge. They have new management. The guy who came over was at Intuit. He had a great M&A strategy that really helped that that business. And I think that that's what PayPal has to figure out for itself. Um, So it's a cheap stock. It's been annihilated. It's 80% off its high. And technically, I think it's probably
2: bottomed. Okay. Now, what's the, the methodology behind your selling of ChargePoint, CHPT, which you did? Tax loss. Just plain and simple, just tax loss. Just time to get out of that?
6: I've been, I've been selling it down all year. I now officially have none. Um, it's one of my worst positions over the last couple of years. I think when I bought it in 2021, it was a different environment. The environment changed. The fundamentals of the company got worse. I spent too long giving them the benefit of the doubt. At this point, it's gone so low, um, it's almost irrelevant to the portfolio, but uh, the tax loss carry forward will be valuable, especially given how much the market is up this year. How many stocks, I mean, you think about, we are talking about growth versus value. Um, Look at the, the top 10 growth stocks they're up an average of 80%. Like, there's a lot of there are a lot of taxable gains. It's really important that
2: you have uh, taxable losses to help offset those. Yeah, UBS today downgrading it to neutral. Uh, they had it on a buy, and they cut the price target. Uh, wow, uh, all the way to two dollars and twenty-five cents. So well, we the will, CEO,
6: uh, the CEO got thrown. The CEO got thrown out. It's a, it's a disaster. They did every. They literally did everything wrong. So they fired the CEO. They put in somebody uh, internally. They have to figure out the business model. I don't have time for that. I'm, I'm. It's a 21st century. I'm, I'm going a mile a minute, living my life. I'm not going to wait for them to figure out a new business
2: model. <laughs> yeah, living the dream. It's under two bucks. Um, all right, point taken, for sure. Um, our chart of the day, Steph. By the way, which I want to hit here is, is Micron. What do you yeah. make of this? Um, you know, they update their guidance. The stock was down three percent. We can take a look at it now, see if it's improved on that at all since they, you know. It's down just about 3%, just, just shy of that. You, you don't own it, um, but you do you know, have plays within, within the chip space. What's this tell you?
5: doesn't tell me much. The stock's up 50% and expectations got ahead of themselves for gross margins. They did see price increases, but the expectations were that they would get more price increases. But they did also talk about supply coming down, which is what we've been waiting for forever. That's starting to improve. And demand, they said their end markets are quite strong. We all know about AI, but they also touched on auto. Jimmy? and consumer, so there are end markets that they are still seeing momentum. So I just think it's a sell the news kind of thing. I still think very uh, positively about the two names that I own.
2: What's your your Broadcom? And, and LAMB. By the way, um, UBS raises Broadcom price target today to $1,125. Yeah. Bank of America goes to $1,200.
5: You know, we talk about the diverse total revenue mix at Broadcom all the time. Data center, cloud, AI, uh, networking, Apple exposure. That's what I like, but I also really like this VMware deal. Now that it's closed, we're going to get some of the synergy numbers uh, next week when they report earnings. By the way, the stock always trades crummy on earnings. I would be a buyer of, if the stock pulls back. They have 7.0 3 billion left in their buyback. And I actually think that they're going to increase that next week as well. So I I still think this is a very attractive semiconductor company, and it's at a very reasonable uh, valuation. Um, Yes, we've seen a re-rating to 24 times forward uh, from 16, but I think it's deserved because they've been able to deliver. Lamb Research, I mentioned yesterday, Goldman Sachs, Mm -hmm. Morgan Stanley, both raising uh, wafer fab equipment numbers. and, And Lamb Research themselves have raised the numbers twice this year and that stock trades at 22 times Lamb, forward.
2: Liam is up 22% by the way in in a month. Yes. So it's had a great run. The SMH by the way Jimmy's up 16. What's your what's your take here on, on the chips?
3: There's a battleground still going on in the chip space about whether the bottom is in, whether inventories have been right-sized. In the last earnings season, you got some indication from some sort of, I'll call them second tier, but I own them, so I don't think they're second tier companies, second tier to NVIDIA. But think about what NXPI said, what Qualcomm said. They see enough demand going forward that they confidently uh, guided going forward. But if you look at the earnings estimates for those companies, they really haven't budged. And that, to me, indicates the battleground that people and analysts really don't believe the bottom is in in chips now when a bottom forms in any industry it takes more than one quarter for people to believe so what you're really looking for here is as you get into December are there any pre-announcements in the chip space as a whole that gives indication that the bottom is in fact in and then when earnings reports comes in I know that feels a long way a month from now but I think it's highly likely that the bottom is in after the disaster that chips mostly went through over the last year and a half inventories have been right-sized. We hear that across the board, uh, and I think you've got a bright future there. I mean, SMH is up 60% year-to-date. Which a lot of that is NVIDIA. I mean, that's that's what I was trying to say in my comments. I don't think Qualcomm and NXP are, are second tier, but when you compare them to Nvidia, yeah, they are. It's sort of like Nvidia and the rest of the world. I sure. don't know about yeah, that. Well, because you, like Broadcom. you like Broadcom. I know you like Broadcom. Broadcom is
5: up 70 percent, and there's plenty of others. Qualcomm, not so much. Jimmy's Intel, going to the
2: water. So He's going to the water. <laughs> that <laughs> means you're you're getting them right now. I mean, you're getting them.
5: Like, um, no, I mean, look, I agree with you on your thesis of semiconductors. I think we absolutely have bottomed. We're hearing it from pockets of companies, but it. it isn't just about NVIDIA. Steph,
3: sometimes I when we speak, we've got to kind of keep it tight here. So, like, if I were to list Samsung, Texas Instruments, a whole bunch of other, there's more in that category that have been laboring than there are in the category of the NVIDIAs. Exactly my point. Than there are in the categories of NVIDIA and Broadcom. So when I say, oh, it's NVIDIA versus the rest of the world, maybe I'm summarizing a little bit too much, and I will certainly acknowledge Broadcom should be added in that conversation I'm speaking a little tightly. Well, don't forget,
2: too, Josh, about your AMD, which, you know, in Kramer, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, Of what he was saying earlier this morning but it's like if you want to bank on something right now it's not necessarily micron it's it's AMD yeah
6: AMD has got some resistance uh, dating back to June of this year at about 129 ish stocks uh, 122 or so I think it's gonna challenge that old resistance from the summer I think there will be some fundamental reasons as to why that challenge happens This is a company that is now going to be releasing on a faster schedule than NVIDIA, and they are going to answer the supply challenge in this industry. Um, So they're gonna be a really important player. I don't think they'll ever be uh, taking a huge amount of market share from NVIDIA. My position in NVIDIA is much bigger than AMD, but I think the opportunity over the decade is big enough that there will be many players uh, benefiting. So AMD, I'm, I'm still long. Uh, I want to see what happens as she approaches that 128, 129 level. I want to see good volume. I want to see that accumulation remain underway. I'll be watching the RSI for signs that the rally is petering out. I don't see any of those signs. The stock looks like she wants to be higher.
2: Jan?
0: To Steph's point, this is really all about we're coming up on sort of cyclically the time when you should see a restocking cycle, right, on both the consumer side and on the corporate side. So the question is, how strong is that restocking cycle? How uh, Potentially discipline do corporations become in thinking about this inventory cycle. Um, but there's more of a secular tailwind than a headwind right now for some. just where we are in the in this cycle.
2: All right. We will take a quick break. When we come back, we'll do our calls of the day. We do have several. One top analyst says next year could determine the long term relevance of one specific industry. We've got ownership on the desk in it. We will discuss when we come back. Let's do our calls of the day. And uh, the first one is, is really interesting. It's from Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas, and it's on the auto industry. Jimmy, obviously coming to you. He says, quote, we see 2024 as a year that may determine the long-term relevance of the U.S. auto industry. Now, he has overweight ratings on both General Motors and Ford. Let's just say, state that at, at the outset. He, he does say, however, the average S&P 500 company spends its market cap in CapEx and R&D in about 50 years. GM and Ford spend their market cap in 1.9 and 2.6 years respectively. This cannot continue in our view. What do you make of this note? And two stocks that have done next to nothing. You saw General Motors, target 40, it's well below that now. I didn't see Ford, can we throw Ford up again please? Because that was quick. Uh, the target is 15. There's General Motors, 20, just shy of 29, he has 40. Ford, there it is
3: at 10, he has 15. Good setup. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, I agree with the premise. I agree that this is the year coming up that it's either make or break. And I, I hate saying that, but it's the truth. There's a lot that's gone on. We've got this tug of war between EVs and internal combustion engines. Now, oddly enough, paradoxically, the adoption of EVs is actually helping internal combustion engine as it's lowering gasoline demand and with it crack spreads in gasoline prices, which is making internal combustion engines from a cost point of view more attractive than they were just a year ago. So you're seeing a good demand for internal combustion engine, which helps GM and Ford. However, these labor costs, we need to see. I mean, look, there has been a ton of profit at these companies, a ton. And we need to see how much these labor costs eat into them. I think it's actually very simple to raise prices one to two percent on your auto sales over the next four years to really cover that cost. But we have to see. The proof will be in the pudding.
2: The commentary he's got around the EV push is that he thinks they can both participate in that, but here's this is interesting what he says at some scale through a more measured and collaborative Bingo. approach. Bingo. While also returning capital to shareholders. And and let me thank you that's for putting like that out. That's like having a cake and eating it too. In well, but they've respects. been
3: they've been doing it. So you know they're spending. I'll take GM. They've spent about ten billion dollars in R and D on the last uh, twelve months, and that's up about fifty percent from pre-pandemic. That's been spent on EV build out at the same time that they're buying back five percent of their shares outstanding year over year. Now the key thing is in the last couple of months, management, Mrs. Barrow has said uh, we're slowing down the EV capex build out. That's what you got to do when you see these EV inventories piling up and the demand has gone down is slow down the capex so to uh, mr. Jonas's point, and he's an excellent analyst about the amount of R&D spend yes let's bring it down at a, to a measured pace but they still want to invest in the e- EV space for the long-term future the one data point I want to you know you got to do this if you're gonna say and I've never heard this before R&D is a percentage of market cap R&D is management's decision the market cap is the market's decision and right now the market cap is extraordinarily low for these companies so I don't think I'd be judging management's R&D decision by where the market cap is. It's ridiculously low Jim, for these what companies. what is the
5: catalyst to get people to buy this, these, these stocks?
3: Well, nothing I mean, in the next month. Because you make a compelling that. argument. You yeah. really
5: do. But you have been for the last year, and the, the yeah. stocks only go down.
3: Well, a couple of things. Look, pretty soon, I think it's in a couple of weeks, there's going to be a GM uh, analyst day in which they'll say what the effects of the, of the labor uh, strike is. And look, let's face it. Analysts, sell-side analysts are holding back. They are just waiting to see what management guides them before they put their numbers out there. I think they're going to find, as I just look at the numbers, that it's not that draconian and that the profits are going to be there. But I think that's what you're waiting for, for a catalyst point of view. Absent that catalyst, they're going to keep buying back these shares at 50% of book value, and I'll just keep concentrating my share of a very good earnings.
2: I'm going to read an email I got from a a loyal viewer. I'll just say that, who emails me a lot. Uh, I would love for Jim to comment on the fact that GM is $5 below the November 2010 IPO price of 33
3: my comment is that sucks, but let me also ask the loyal viewer, what comment do you want me to make to that? You're, you're giving me factual data points and not telling me where it's going from here. No, but I think it under. I think it underscores,
2: I no, no, hold on. I think it underscores kind of the point that Steph was was making that, you know, the the bullish fundamental outlook that you have hasn't worked and doesn't continue to work, and thus is it suspect to believe at this point that it will work.
3: Well, having gotten out my little vitriol about telling me for the third time in this segment about how lousy the stock has been, I got it. I got it. That's a fact. However, when you're a long-term investor, you are making a decision today, not based on the last 10 years, today, and what the earnings stream is versus the price that you're paying for the shares, I see this a very compelling value. Uh, And that's that's all I can do. I'm a long term investor. I'm not going to get worried about it. What's done is
6: done. What do you think about this company going into the next recession? So I understand you don't you don't think there's a recession coming this year. You've been right that there hasn't been one this year. But surely you would agree there will be one. If you study the history of the American automakers after every recession, they emerge weaker than the prior version of themselves, not stronger, they never rebound uh, in share price, in financial health. How do you think this company, if you say you're a long-term investor, will fare in a recession, even if that recession is not till 25? um, Do you still want to be a long-term holder? Josh, it's uh, a great point, I get uh, your point. Of the stock when that happens?
3: I I certainly get your point. It's well-made, it's factual, it's correct. I will point out that at the automotive business, and you should strip out GMAC, that's separate, okay, at the automotive division, there's $13 billion of net cash right now. It's a very strong financial position. In the last quarter, they generated $5 billion of free cash flow. Now, your point is well made that when there's a recession, that free cash flow is going to go negative, and you're going to eat into that cash balance. My point is not seeing a recession on the horizon, me personally, for the next four quarters, that gives even more time for that cash kitty to build up and for those shares to be bought bought back. But emphatically, I agree with you. In a recession, the financial health of any manufacturing company is going to go down. If I saw that in the next four quarters, my investment outlook would be different. I I think I saw a
2: promo earlier that Mary Barra is going to be on the network. I think maybe it's tomorrow. Um, Let's figure that out. and, uh, And so I can be more specific about that. But I'm pretty sure I saw that Mary Barra is going to be on tomorrow. So you want to watch that? I do. All right. Let's get the headlines with Bertha Coombs. Hey, Bertha.
9: Hey, Scott. The wife of Ukraine's military spy chief was reportedly poisoned and is in the hospital. A spokesperson for the agency said Mariana Budanova was poisoned with heavy metals. The military spy chief is known as the mastermind behind operations that strike back at Russia. If the poisoning is confirmed as deliberate, it would mark the most serious attack on a Ukrainian leader's family during the war. CIA Director William Burns arrived in Qatar today to help with hostage negotiations. One U.S. official said Burns will also work to build on the ceasefire agreement between Hamas and Israel. Burns is scheduled to meet with the head of Israel's spy service and Qatar officials. Workers trapped in a collapsed tunnel in the Himalayas were finally all rescued today. The 41 men were trapped for 17 days as rescuers worked to drill through rock and concrete. One rescue team leader said the workers all appear to be in good health. That's great news. Scott, back over to you. All
2: right, Bertha, thank you. Uh, By the way, Mary Barra tomorrow, Squawk on the Street, 915. I told you I wanted to be more specific, and there you go. So I hope everybody watches that. All right. Coming up, we're watching Disney shares today. They are under pressure. The company holding a town hall meeting with employees. Julia Borson is going to join us next
8: with the very latest there. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive.
2: Disney shares their session lows uh, right now. That happening as the Disney CEO, Bob Iger, is holding a town hall with employees. See Julia Borston there because she's covering it. Julia, what are we hearing here?
7: Well, it's been a year since Bob Iger convened in town hall after he returned as CEO. And in the past 12 months, the stock's have down about five percent. Um, Iger, I hear, was asked on stage if it's been a more challenging year than he thought it would be. He said yes. So right now, the new Amsterdam Theater, that's where Aladdin plays on Broadway. ABC News anchor David Moore is moderating a town hall streamed to employees. This is a conversation that's supposed to be about future building opportunities. Now, Iger was on stage first solo with Moyer. Then he was joined by division chiefs and potential successors in when his term is up in three years, including entertainment chiefs Dana Walden and Alan Bergman, ESPN's Jimmy Pitaro and also Parks head, Josh tomorrow. Now, Iger is talking about his areas of focus and he flagged these areas in Disney's last earnings call. One of them is building ESPN into a digital sports platform. I'm told that Iger talked about potential strategic partnerships for ESPN, which could include leagues or tech companies, but he definitely left the door open. He's also meant to talk about profitability in the streaming business as Disney buys out the remainder of Hulu as well as improving the output and economics of the film studios, which is of course now under particular scrutiny after several box office disappointments. And then finally, there's the parks business, which Iger doubled down on with a $60 billion investment in the next 10 years we're also watching if to see if there'll be any questions or commentary about another potential activist move by nelson peltz's treon fund um, we'll be back with more as more comes out about this me- meeting but i'm hearing that the tone so far is very positive scott
2: okay uh, julia thank you very much for that i mean the stock's up 16 percent in november so maybe they're feeling a little bit better about things jim labenthal you must be as well yes or no
3: yes Yes. Uh, the, the key element was two weeks ago during the earnings report when they confirmed that cost cutting is in place and they're getting to profitability on streaming. Now, as far as this town hall goes, I'm not really expecting earth-shattering news. I certainly don't want to hear anything bad. But what I would like to hear, I don't expect to hear this, but what I'd like to hear is any acceleration in the uh, path to profitability in streaming. I know that's only one of several things that are going on, and Julia mentioned Hulu, ESPN, et cetera. But in terms of near-term things, not today, but in the near term that I think might happen is if the subscriber count keeps growing and they keep cutting costs that maybe it's before September 30th that you hear profitability at the streaming business, which is what I'd like to see.
2: All right. So that's one of the stocks we've been paying attention to today. The other one, uh, interestingly, is Zoom, uh, Josh Brown, which I think you still own. I had a conversation yesterday with NYU's uh, dean of valuation is what we call him, Oswalt Demotorin, and he said Zoom appears undervalued. Uh, after the sell off, uh, we're talking about, you know, where valuations of the overall market are different sectors that look maybe even over undervalued. And he specifically mentioned Zoom and Peloton as being undervalued. What are your thoughts?
6: I mentioned Shopify earlier in the show. This is an example of a stock where people said, oh, it's a pandemic, darling. It's over. Look at the move in this name. Um, this is what's starting to happen now with the companies that got tarred with that brush of being stay at home stocks or work from home stocks. Now, the good ones are separating themselves from the not so good ones. Zoom is still a not so good one, but it doesn't have to stay that way. I have a company with 63 employees. We were using Ring Central for our phones and our text. Anyone who works on Wall Street knows this. There were multi-billion dollar settlements all over the street this summer because of employees texting clients and not archiving. We have to archive. We can't use personal text message, personal phone lines. So that's the business that Zoom has now entered. It's an enterprise telecom business with crazy good margins if you get it right. Zoom took our business away from Ring Central, and we are now proudly on their platform. And we are not, from what I hear, the only client win um, that they're going to be talking about in the coming weeks, months, and quarters. If, in fact, that's the new growth business for this stock, it should not trade 14 times forward earnings. This is a stock that went down 46% in 2021. 63 percent in 2022 this year it's negative three percent on the year in a sector where many of the names have at least doubled i think it's cheap it's not growing yet but that's the part that i believe they will have the ability to fix company has tons of cash it's not an emergency situation they have time to get it right and if and when they hit their stride and start to grow again You're going to see this stock re-rate, and it's not going to be gradual. It's going to be overnight. That's why I'm in it. It's not a big position, but I think the odds are in my favor with
2: not a lot of risk. All right. So the professor gives you an A, Uh, I think it's fair to say. (laughs) Up next, Mike Santoli. He joins us with his midday word when we come back.
8: Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now.
2: Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator, is at the desk for his midday word. So I think from our conversations, you've been watching 430. That level on the ten-year, yeah. which we started to creep towards again sure. on these Waller comments. Now we're at 435. Now specifically, but we're, it's we're in actually the
1: ballpark. 434. If you want to get really cute about it, 434. Well, that's what close we are. In high in the yield in August. Okay. And so, uh, Jeff DeGraff, others have been saying that that's a spot where, if we kind of get below that, it looks like a real breakdown in yield. It maybe clears the way for some more relief on that front. You know, the Waller comments I think very well received, but also this sense out there that that kind of was in the market largely already. That sense out there that next move is lower. uh, They're not necessarily going to have to wait for the economy to fall Mm. apart before they start to ease this idea of insurance cuts, 1995-style fine-tuning. I think that would be how I'd put it, too. The other piece of it, though, is the stock market's been on this 20 day sprint and you're at a point where you had a lot of people who had to buy because they needed to get exposures up. And now you're at a point where give me a new reason why I need to, you know, go further from here. So, I mean, handling things fine. It's just that uh, as we click toward the July highs in the S&P, you, you see some hesitation, especially ahead of that seven year Treasury auction coming up in a few minutes. Oh, OK. We'll pay attention to that yeah. because we, we know what's happened with those. I'll see you on That's yeah. yep. Mike
2: Santoli. CrowdStrike, get ready uh, to report earnings in overtime. Uh, Shares are up 20% this month alone. Josh owns it, so we give you the setup, and we'll do it next. get to as many names as possible before we run out of time. I got a Bill Baruch new move coming up, too. He's going to come on and tell you his latest stock. But let's do CrowdStrike, Josh. We want the setup uh, from you ahead of earnings and overtime. For a stock that's already doubled this year, it's up
6: 102%. Yeah, this is one of my favorite names in the market. I've been in it for years. Uh, they consistently outperform expectations. This is a stock that over the last four quarters has beaten every time on on earnings. Uh, And they've beaten by an average of 20% or so. So I I feel pretty good going into the number, although the stock obviously has rallied a lot. Um, I think it's at a 52-week high right now. They should do $775 to $778 million in in revenue for the quarter. That would be 34% year-over-year growth. Um, It's trading about 60 times forward earnings. It is not a cheap stock. It's definitely a high flyer, but the expected earnings growth for the year um, should be like 83%. So this was a name that I started buying it before they were earning money. Um, They took their time. They built the business. They weren't focused on profitability. Now they are. Gross profit margins have been above 75% in each of the last two quarters.
2: All right. Good stuff. Thank you for that. I I want to squeeze in Boeing, too, uh, with you, Steph, because it did get upgraded today Uh, at RBC. Target to 275 from 200. Outperformed the call.
5: I mean, the stock's up 20% in the past month, so it's not exactly great timing. But 2024 does set up very well. As they fix the supply chains. expectations have already been lowered many, many times times. Free cash flow is poised to accelerate. They've got 5,200 planes in their backlog. Very good visibility for the long term.
2: All right. We'll take a quick break. Uh, And when we come back, Bill Baruch, I said he's got a new name that he just added. He is going to join us and he'll tell us exactly what it is next. All right. Trade alert. Bill Baruch, I said he's got something new. Uh, Here he is. What's this new stock you've added?
10: Domino's Pizza, ticker symbol DPZ. Now, this has a great management team. It has terrific online presence. And the loyalty program, which they rolled out in September as a new one, we've seen an uptick in in, uh, search results since the middle of September. So I think that's all really good. Uh, As this loyalty program continues, I mean, it's become the quick, efficient, Uh, inexpensive way to feed a family of four or more. So I I really like this. But it's come down since May, uh, really allowing uh, a bottom in May for an accumulation period over the last six months or so. And a really good uh, chart pattern. So I I think as we've seen this this stock perk up here recently, I think we could have a a low from October 30th. And I think 500 bucks
2: would be in the cards here soon. Did you sell anything to to buy this? Or this was just added from cash? This was added from cash, but initially
10: I had sold McDonald's about two weeks ago, Uh, really worried about the weight loss drug and the impact it had on that. And McDonald's had rebounded pretty well, but it felt like I I needed something, exposure to consumer food or in the portfolio. My fear for McDonald's is really they're targeting um, working individuals morning and lunch to expand the revenue growth. Here, I mean, this is an evening staple, um, and it really is, it's a cheap, quick staple. And I don't think the weight loss drug is going to have an impact on Domino's. And, and like I said, it's, it's, it's sold off well before that and has been bottoming out since May. So I think this is its time for the really nice chart pattern.
2: All right. Yeah. It's, so again, a nice little move here. Thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on and telling our viewers about this move. We'll talk to you soon. Bill Baruch. We'll come back right after this with Final Trades. All right, 3 o'clock Eastern, closing bell. we got a big show coming up. Liz Young's going to be with us today. PIMCO's Aaron Brown giving her playbook for the new year. Roger Altman on what's going on, when the Fed might cut rates. And then on this Giving Tuesday, we've got Jake Wood. Uh, of course, he's the co-founder, uh, CEO of Team Rubicon. He's also the founder and CEO of Groundswell, as they aim to democratize philanthropy. So we got a lot to talk about. He's such an impressive uh, individual and I hope you'll join me in a couple hours on, on Closing Bell for that. How about this Amazon news? You see this? Mm-hmm. Um, they have a blog which says they're introducing uh, Amazon Q, a new generative AI-powered assistant. So like Microsoft's Copilot. pilot right? Is your biggest position?
5: It is my biggest position. Well, I, I love hearing it. They have 36 billion in free cash flow. I love that they're using their free cash flow to continue to grow.
2: Okay, we have about a minute left, so let's do finals. Uh, Josh Brown, what do you got for me? Uh,
6: another one of my losers this year was Carlisle, but I think the stock may have bottomed. They have a new CEO who's highly respected. I'm hoping for a better 2024 from from uh, CG.
2: OK, uh, Jimmy, all in. Farmer Jim, Yeah, thanks. Jimmy on the farm.
3: <laughs> we talked about it earlier. Steffi did a good, a good job on Boeing, but that is my final trade because I think you got to respect the momentum coming back from a very old oversold position here.
2: All right. You had a lot of brush to clear on the show today. <laughs> You're feeling all right? I had to clear the brush. I cleared the brush. All I'm right. fine. Feel Jan, good. what do you got?
0: Consumer staples. Uh, we do think that consumers are going to continue to be under pressure and be very thoughtful about their basket. But there is the opportunity for better margins as we see overall input inflation come down.
5: And Steph? Halliburton. I own Schlumberger, but I really like Halliburton, down 5% year-to-date, and I think international is inflecting and margins have been expanding.
2: Oh, okay. You tell us if you add that, okay, if mm-hmm. you're dropping some, some clues. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll see you on Closing Bell, the exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.
8: Oh.